Okay, and there are 19 minutes left now, so I want the rest of the time. Um, this has been two intense, interesting, and inspiring days uh, discussing impunity, accountability, and amnesty. And I'd like to thank the organizers, as well as all the participants. Um, we started off yesterday with Brazil, which is the largest southern cone country, which has arguably done the very least. Um, in the area of transitional justice to address the violations of its past. Uh, this morning we talked about philosophical reflections. We had philosophical reflections on amnesty, impunity, the importance of law, the tension or interrelationship to be between international law and domestic law. Uh, we've been in big statistical analysis, very interesting data on trends in amnesty. Um, we've been in Africa, we've been in Europe. Uh, and now I'm going to take you back again to the little brother of Brazil, uh, which is Uruguay, kind of squeezed in between Argentina and Brazil. But I think Uruguay has, in a way, sums up and many of the debates and the issues uh, that we have been raising in the last couple of days. Uh, first of all, it's about the ju judicialization of politics, or as I would argue, the re-judicialization of what should have been judicial matters and not political matters to start off with, which is what criminal justice should be. It should be a matter of the courts, not of politics. Um, it's about the importance of civil society actors. It's about the responsiveness of judges as well as civil society actors to the inter-American system of human rights, as well as larger international human rights norms. It's about impunity versus amnesty. And it's also about the relevance of the democratic process uh, when we discuss amnesty laws and how to get rid of amnesty laws. Now, let, let's start with some facts. And facts are always a matter of debate and dispute. Uh, what is not disputable is the period of the military dictatorship in, in Uruguay from 73 to 85. Uh, it was part of the Operación Condor network. Um, repression in Uruguay wasn't as tough or as bad as in many of the surrounding countries. Um, there are 172 officially documented cases of detained disappearance. Interestingly, only 32 of those people disappeared within Uruguay. The vast majority, close to 100 people, disappeared in Argentina. And a few or a couple disappeared in Chile and in Paraguay. And this has had implications for the judicial processes that are now ongoing. Um, the unofficial figures, uh, which I have from an NGO, run at around 300. So there are always, there's always contestation when you try to count um, or quantify repression. And of those who disappeared are 13 children, which is also very important for the court cases that have been brought up in later years, and six of those children still remain missing. Um, although detained disappearance was not the hallmark of Uruguayan repression the way it was in Argentina, Uruguay became infamous for long-term political prisoners and torture, which was very extensive. And in a small country with a very small population of 3 million people, 
very many people were touched by the repression, either directly on their bodies or indirectly. And this, I think, has also shaped uh, the Uruguayan discourse and quest for justice and the political debates in latter years. These are just some of the more specific facts, which you can have a look at. It's in Spanish. Now, moving on to how has Uruguay dealt with its repression? Um, Uruguay started off with impunity as a main policy, but it did engage in some formal transitional justice efforts. And I think Uruguay is probably the only country in the world which is, has had no less than four truth commissions. And then, you know, you can debate whether these, these were real truth commissions or not, but there were four efforts at, at, at fact-finding. Uh, two of them just after the transition to democratic rule. One looked into the fate of the disappeared, broadly speaking, roughly into the fate of around 150 people who disappeared. The second commission focused on two political murders that took place in Buenos Aires uh, in 76. Two high-level, prominent left-wing politicians, Selma Michelini, Hector Guitierrez Ruiz. And these, I mentioned this because they had given rise to court cases in latter years. And none of these commissions handed over their findings to the courts. Uh, courts started investigating. Um, they were stopped by the amnesty law. Nothing happened. Uh, nothing much happened in the courts because it was cut short by the amnesty law. Um, and basically, the information wasn't really spread out in the in society. Park, which is a regional uh, NGO with an office in Uruguay, set down a report or a committee uh, and launched a report in 1989. And Sefpach, I think, documented around 164 detained disappeared people. But this report didn't get a lot of resonance or wasn't spread or got the same kind of publicity as the Nunca Mas report got in uh, Argentina or the report in Chile later. So it was kind of a, a very anonymous project. Uh, the issue of truth was put again on the political agenda by President uh, Baget, the Commission para la Paz, which uh, worked for about three years and documented, got some information from the military, which hadn't been disclosed previously, and also increased the number of officially recognized detained disappeared to 172. In addition to these four fact-finding projects or truth commission projects, Uruguay has also debated and engaged in reparation programs. Starting last year, continuing this year, there has been a commission on reparations. Um, there have also been attempts at establishing memorials, and there are discussions on whether files, secret files, should be open, particularly within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Now, these are all non-punitive efforts at getting at gross human rights violations. Let's turn to the impunity process uh, in Uruguay, which is as long as the fact-finding efforts. Um, the transition to Uruguay in 1985 was a classic pacted transition, where the military was still strong. Uh, there were talks between the military and the incoming civilian government starting before the formal transition, uh, the so-called Club Naval talks, and uh, academics and practitioners disagree on this. 
but whether there was an actually explicit agreement between the military and the incoming regime of impunity for the military. What we do know is that this was formalized um, in the Ley de Colucida in 1986. And this was after some of the court cases. Uh, you know, people brought, I think there was something like 600 cases in Uruguayan courts in the first two years after the transition to democratic rule. And of course, all the action of judges was stopped with this particular law. And I will get back to the details of this law. Now I just want to say something about what has happened to this law historically speaking, the amnesty law or expiry law. They don't want to call it an amnesty law. Ley de impunidad, ley de In 1988, this law was given a formal seal of approval by the Supreme Court, declaring it unanimously, no, not unanimously, it was a 5-2 decision, declaring it constitutional. Now, people were really upset about this law. The human rights sector and the left-wing political party Frente Amplio was not very happy with the amnesty at all. Uh, there is a rule, um, a political thing um, in Uruguay which allows the electorate to challenge a law within two years. You need 25% of the electorate to sign uh, to hold a referendum. And through huge mobilization in Uruguay, they were actually successful at staging a referendum. I think they had more than 600,000 votes of the total population. Voting is mandatory, so there was a very high electoral turnout of over 80%. Uh, when the first referendum was held in 1989, it was a really, really close race. Now figures, you know, you can never trust figures, but somewhere between 52 and 56% of those who voted, voted to uphold the amnesty law. And this was a huge blow to the human rights sector, which had instigated the campaign. They were really sure they were going to win. And now, in a way, there was a democratic seal of approval on the amnesty law. Not only was it passed by the legislators, but it, you know, the majority of the Uruguayan population said, yes, we want this amnesty law in place. This was to color the debates for many, many years in Uruguay. And as you see, the next attempt at annulling this law came 20 years later, in 2009, there was a lapse of 20 years. And this happened in connection with the general elections last year, presidential and parliamentary elections. <laughs> this time, uh, they were really, really sure they were going to overturn the amnesty law. And there were two particular reasons for this. One was that just days before the election took place, the Supreme Court of Uruguay unanimously declared Ley de Carucida unconstitutional in the Sabo Sagaray case, which was mentioned yesterday. Not only that, but one of the presidential candidates running and winning the elections was Jose Pepe Mujica, which is a former Tupamaro. He was tortured, he was imprisoned, and you know, he has had human rights violations on his body. He won the elections, but what did the Uruguayan electorate do? they voted to uphold the amnesty law. Now, this is the only time, I think, in world history where an amnesty law has been subject to popular referenda and where the population has voted to retain the amnesty law. So, you know, Uruguay is small, but it is unique. You know, you talk about Brazil as an anomaly. Uruguay is too, but in a different, in a different way. Um, the story doesn't stop there. 
There have been political debates uh, in Uruguay, starting with the law proposal which was forwarded this summer, Norwegian summer, which is July, June, July. Um, and the debate in the House of Representatives took place only two days ago, Wednesday this week. And I hear from the, one of the Argentinians here that the vote was in favor of annulling the amnesty law, contrary to what the population voted just you know, a few months back. Now, for this annulment, uh, and it's, it's not annulling the entire amnesty law, it's trying to do away with four of the paragraphs or articles in the Leia Calusida, including Article 4, which I'm going to get back to. Um, but for this to actually become law, uh, it has to be also approved by the Senate. And I don't know when the senatorial discussions are going to take place, I assume in the near future. So if this goes through, it means that Uruguay is going to be the second country in Latin America after Argentina to successfully annul its amnesty law. And who would have thought that 10 years ago? Certainly not me when I started working on Uruguay. Um, this amnesty law or law has not only been challenged repeatedly at the national level, it has also been challenged internationally. Uh, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights in, in a report in 1992-1993 declared this the Lady Calocida incompatible with the American Declaration on the Rights and Duties of Man and also in contradiction with the Inter-American Convention on Human Rights. Uruguay didn't care much at the time or the politicians in Uruguay at the time did not care much. Now what does the Lady Calusida actually say? It gives amnesty committed prior to the 1st of March 1985 for military and political reasons, politis poli politics and the military. Um, during the period of de facto. And this is important because this has been challenged later in court cases mm -hmm. by saying that, well, civilians were not exempted, were not covered by this amnesty law. So this is a central point. Moreover, the infamous Article 4. I won't read the whole text to you. You can read it for yourself. But the, the two most important points here is when a judge takes on a case of alleged human rights violations, he has to get the approval of the executive to continue investigations. And the cases that could be investigated were missing people and missing children or children who had been kidnapped. Okay? And then it's up to the executive to immediately order the investigation of these events in order to clarify them. So what does this mean? This means that anything that comes to the court has to go via the executive before the case can continue. Now, you know, you may think that this was, oh good, you know, there's an exception. We will allow for the investigation of the cases of the disappeared. So there were some crimes that you can look into. In effect, this was a political move to put judicial processes in the pocket of the executive. Because this means that as long as the executive refuses to investigate, refuses to, to not apply the law, it means that nothing is going to happen. And that was exactly what took place in Uruguay for many years. 
Now, I've, I've gone through the different presidencies. Sanguinetti of Colorado, the president who uh, got this Lady Carusida through to start off with. Uh, he had a policy of national pacification, cambio en paz, and got the expiry law introduced. He was officially for impunity. Were there any trials during this period? No. Second, Lacalle, who we know actually very, he's a very anonymous president uh, in Uruguayan human rights history. You, you won't find much written on Lacalle in combination with human rights. He didn't pronounce on it, he didn't really do much. And he definitely didn't challenge the Lele Calucida. Um, impunity prevailed, no trials. Sanguinetti, interestingly enough, from a European perspective, got re-elected into office. He continued his policy of impunity. We're now getting into 2000 here. Were there many trials? No. Baje, finally a change, but a president from the same political party. But he decided, you know, for political reasons or other reasons, which I could elaborate on, um, Baje decided to accept demands for truth. So he was for clarification of the so-called, you know, the demand for truth, basically. Uh, Sanguinetti repeated many, he received many, many cases of demands for knowing the whereabouts of children or knowing the whereabouts of disappeared people. He invariably refused to hear these cases. Baja took a different course, and there were two emblematic court cases that I will get back, into, back again to, which started the truth trials in 2000. There was a political shift uh, when Vasquez got into power in 2005. Frente Amplio, who had had human rights on the political agenda from the very beginning, who had been opposed to the amnesty law from the very beginning, as opposed to the Colorados and the Blancos, uh, decided that enough impunity, he didn't take any measures to have the law annulled, but he did take measures to have the law reinterpreted. So he had a proposal passed, and this was mentioned yesterday. Uh, this allowed investigations into violations committed before the coup. Remember, the, the law only covers the time of the coup. And this technically opened up the possibility of looking into six, roughly 600 officials' involvement in gross human rights violations prior to the official military coup. It also allowed looking into violations that were committed outside Uruguay. And this is important for the very reason that most Uruguayans disappeared in Argentina, not in Peru. So this you know, tripled the universe of cases um, that could be prosecuted in the courts. And third, he opened up for violations committed by civilians. And this brings us to the first court case, the real court case. Let's skip this. Okay. Uh, the status of investigations in Uruguay at the moment is, I don't have the, the final, final figures on this, but there are roughly 60 cases in court, in Uruguayan courts at different levels at the moment. There have been at least 11 convictions, and of those convictions, I believe that all have been sentenced. And you're welcome to contradict me if I'm wrong on this. And this is as of October. Mm -hmm. Now, what are the emblematic court cases in the U Uruguayan context? The first truth case was launched before the political shift in 2000. It was launched 
already during the presidency of the second presidency of Sanguinetti. Um, this was the Caso Sanoria. Uh, there was a claim from um, Felipe Michelini, who is the son of the senator who was assassinated in Buenos Aires in 76. He brought the first court case after the Macho por la Varda in 96, which mobilized something like 100,000 Uruguayans, which is huge in a small population. People were just marching in the streets. And this was triggered by confessions by high-level military officials, Trocconi, admitting to participating in gross human rights violations, just as officials had Silingo had confessed in Argentina roughly at the same time period, involvement triggering and motivating and infuriating the human rights movement. In the wake of this, Michelini presented the first case uh, to the court. It was taken on, you know, surprisingly enough, by a first instance judge in Montevideo. What happened to him? He was put under a lot of pressure. This, this was regarding 150 disappeared, detained disappeared. He was put under a lot of pressure. He was removed from office. The case died. Nothing happened. Three years later, um, the first proper case in court started regarding finding, trying to find the truth. This is the Casa Elena Quinteros. This was a female judge in, also in Montevideo who decided to hear a case which had been going through different rounds in Argentina. While this particular woman was in exile in Sweden, she had also presented the case to the Inter-American Commission, which was later withdrawn, that was in 82, I believe, um, claiming or wanting to know the truths about the whereabouts of the Elena Quinteros. Um, this case had been also presented to Sanguinetti. He said no. Uh, it was now taken on by the court. There was a lot of pressure on the judge to drop the case. She persisted. The case was uh, appealed to the appellate court. Interestingly, the appellate court upheld the decision. And this case, it started off as a truth case, you know, not involving any punitive measure at all. But it was later taken on by a prosecutor in 2002. And this, this same truth case became the first case for a quest for justice. Um, also a female judge who charged the former Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Juan Carlos Blancos, which was a civilian. And this was how they got around the Lady de Caruceda. They charged him, you know, Vasquez had approved that you could charge civilians. So he was charged with this case. And as far as I know, he was given a 20 year sentence for this particular murder or disappearance in April of this year. That was when the court case was concluded. Um, the same foreign minister, together with Borda Barre, one of the, uh, the high junta presidents, or not junta, but the, the military presidents during the dictatorship, were charged with crimes against humanity. And they have also, one was given a three-year sentence, and uh, the other one I don't think has been, been concluded yet. Another high-level dictator, uh, charged with disappearance in 2007, received a sentence of 25 years, along with La Seba, who received 20 years. This is just to illustrate that the sentences that have been meted down in Uruguay, unlike the Chilean ones, are a lot higher, a lot tougher sentences. Now, this has gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. So it's, it's just interesting to see that when Uruguay gets on the ball, it really gets rolling. And they accomplish a lot in a very short time. 
um, the, the Supreme Court made a 100% turnaround and declared the Lady Calusida unconstitutional for the first time last year in the Sabal Sagaray case. And there was another case June this year where the Supreme Court repeated the argument of unconstitutionality. And if in addition you get the political approval of the Senate and the House of Representatives for declaring this law null and void, or at least you know, doing away with Article 4 and Article 1 of the law, it means that for all practical purposes, the universe of cases that can potentially be investigated in Uruguay is going to expand. And that means, if not the end of impunity, at least it means a big attack on impunity in the Uruguayan case. So I think this development has been very, very positive and optimistic. And of course, my big question is, why did Uruguayans vote to keep the amnesty law? And I know there is a research project on this, which is starting now in Montevideo, including Major Marie, uh, trying to figure out why people voted the way they did. And very little has been done on the 1989 referendum. We, don't, we still don't know why people voted against. There was a fair thesis, you know, people didn't vote their proper political preferences because it was in a very restrictive environment. You can't make this argument now. Now, even the political parties are backing this. So, you know, at least people are voting their true preferences. So why are they voting for impunity? And I think that would be an interesting thing to look into. I'll stop here. Thank you.